to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. The first section of the epistle was in verses 1 to 3 of uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, rather, of chapter 1, where uh, the apostle sets down the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ to the prophets. The whole theme, as we've been finding of Hebrews, is this unique and surpassing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is set forth on every page of this epistle. But in these first few verses, he speaks of the superiority of Jesus to the prophets. God spoke in various ways and at diverse times to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, through a son. In chapter 1, verse 4 to the end of of chapter 2, the comparison is drawn between Jesus and the angels, and his superiority is set forth in that context. And we saw again and again that the great emphasis of chapter 1 is on the superiority of Jesus in his full deity to the angels, And in chapter 2, we saw the mystery of God's grace and what he has to do through his Son in his full humanity. So that Jesus is superior to the angels in his perfect Godhead and in his perfect manhood. And now in chapter 3, we come to his third main theme, which is the superiority of Jesus to Moses. And again, let me emphasize that it is not primarily Moses who is the subject of this part of the epistle, but Jesus. He is concerned all the time to be setting forth Jesus in his unique glory. Now, the word, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 3 looks back to the previous chapter where Christ is set forth as the pioneer of our salvation in verse 10 the one, that is, who has come to earth as our brother, that he might become our savior. And he humbled himself and was not ashamed to call them brethren in order that, taking our flesh, he might bear our sin and bring to naught all the powers of darkness, which was the theme of chapter 2. Jesus, therefore, is the mediator of this new covenant which God has made. And the point about the comparison with Moses is that Moses is the mediator of the old covenant. And so he almost naturally flows in chapter 3 to dealing with the superiority of Jesus to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. And you will remember how Moses, in the book of Exodus, was the mediator who went for the people into the presence of God, who came from God with the terms of God's law, with the word that God had given. He was the mediator between the people and God. And Jesus is described in this epistle as the mediator of the new covenant. Now you will notice before we come to this comparison, the way the apostle describes his fellow Christians, and every word of this first verse is of great importance if we just had time to go into it in detail. He describes them as holy brethren, partakers or sharers in a heavenly calling. 
They are brethren because Christ has brought them into God's family, and they are holy because they have been set apart as he was set apart in verse 11 of chapter 2. He who sanctifies and they who are sanctified of all one origin, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And Christ has come to brother us to be our brother in the flesh. And he has thereby brought us into the family of God and made us brethren, separated brethren in the best possible sense of that phrase. He has made us brethren who are sanctified, who are separated by God and made saints as the New Testament's familiar description of God's people is. Now, the other description is that they are those who are partakers in a heavenly calling. <laughs> that is the other thing he wants to press upon us. We are sanctified saints. We are holy brethren whom God has set apart for himself. And we are sharers or partakers in a heavenly calling. Now, that whole concept helps us in all sorts of ways, and it's an important one. Our calling is heavenly, really, because this is where the origin and the goal of it lie. What God is about in the lives of his children, you see, as the apostle has already told us in chapter 2, verse 10, is bringing many sons to glory. So the vocation of the Christian is ultimately concerned with the perfections and glories of heaven. That is what he is doing. This is why Jesus came into the world, in order that through his suffering he might bring many sons to glory. And the calling with which we have been called is therefore a heavenly calling, what Paul calls the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So our ultimate concern is with that perfect world rather than with the imperfections of this fallen world. And the significance of that is not that it makes us careless of how we live in this world or withdrawn from all the demands and pressures of life in this world, but it makes an enormous difference to the way a man lives if he is supremely conscious that whatever the calling of other people in the world may be, his is a heavenly calling. That his citizenship, his true citizenship is not here in this world, but in heaven. And this is the great theme that the Bible is constantly pressing upon us of heavenly mindedness. And I am constantly saying to people, we need to recover this, beloved. We need to find God restoring this heavenly mindedness to us. Look at how the apostle speaks of it and the way it made such a difference to the lives of these men who are the great galaxy of men of faith in chapter 11, for example. Chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith. That is, these mighty men of God to whom he calls upon them to look. He says, here are these men who died in faith, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith Enoch was taken up. By faith Noah, Abraham, 
Jacob, Isaac, he goes through the whole list of these great figures of faith. Now, what is the key to their lifestyle? That's the important thing. What enabled them to go through all the pressures that they went through and still to come out victorious at the end? Here is what it was. The basic characteristic of their life was this. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who seek, speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now there is the point, you see. Their homeland is not in this world. They are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, that is what the apostle is speaking about when he says, Brethren, we have a heavenly calling. And I tell you, that that cheap jibe that is sometimes cast upon people, they are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly use. You constantly find people saying that, don't you? And probably there is something in what they say. We know what they mean. If they mean they are unrealistic. But do you know, I've never, in all the 20 years I've been in the ministry, I've never met that problem in the ministry. That's never been a problem that has really disturbed me, that I found people who were so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly use. The problem I have found is the opposite way around normally. And the apostle says, our calling is a heavenly calling. And we are constantly to have this before us, that we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. It is not our home. We seek a heavenly homeland. And that, you know, will transform the quality of our life here in this world. There is a sense in which the only way you can properly live in this world is when your homeland is in heaven. And that will enrich your life here, not impoverish it, but enrich it and lead you to be able to live as these men of faith lived. Now to these people in danger of faltering and discouragement and faint-heartedness, that was an important thing for him to say. And he addresses them in this chapter, those who are discouraged and tend towards faint-heartedness. He addresses them and encourages them to hold fast to the end. And there is a sense in which chapter 3 is really an exhortation and warning with this in view. If you look at verse 14, for example, you get the phrase, We share in Christ if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. And his great concern throughout the chapter is that they might go right on to heaven. They have been called with a heavenly calling. The origin of their call is in heaven. The goal of their call is in heaven. And his great plea is, brethren, go on. That's what he's saying. Go on to the very end. Hold fast your confidence to the end. Be faithful to death. 
He that endures to the end shall be saved. This is the great plea of this chapter. And it's a tremendously important one. A plea that they might not, in verse 12, fall away or fail to enter in to the rest that God has prepared for his people. Now, as an encouragement towards this holding fast, he urges them to consider, that is to fix their thoughts upon three particular areas, supremely and above all, upon Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession in his perfect faithfulness. And then secondly, in verse 7, he urges them with a note of warning drawn from Scripture to consider their own hearts. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then thirdly, and finally, consider one another. In verse 13, for example, having urged them again, take care, brethren, in verse 12, lest, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, there is the danger. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Now this is what he is doing, this threefold considering. Consider Jesus. Consider your own heart. Consider one another. Let's look at the chapter or part of it anyway this evening in, in that light. Consider Jesus first of all and his absolute faithfulness. The word really means fix all your gaze upon him. It's a difficult word to translate. It means focus all your attention. Concentrate your thought. The New International Version translates it, fix your thoughts upon him, upon Jesus. Let me say a general word about this. We are touching here one of the really vital areas in our own spiritual progress and well-being. And clearly to these Hebrew Christians who were in danger of being discouraged and falling away, this was a vital area of truth. And it is so because a good deal of our trouble in this kind of situation derives from our being preoccupied not with Jesus in all his glory and in all the riches of how God sets him forth before us in books of the Bible like this, but rather in being preoccupied with ourselves. And it is a failure to be preoccupied with him that is often the root of spiritual problems which expand and enlarge into all sorts of other kinds of problems. But not just being preoccupied with him, but considering him, considering him in his offices, pondering the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he is speaking of. 
pondering what it means that God has sent him. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now he says, consider Jesus, not just confess him. There is a difference between confessing Jesus and considering Jesus. That is fixing your gaze upon him, concentrating all your faculties upon him, giving yourself to pondering and thinking through all that God has revealed of the depth and wonder and glory that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the Christian's chief business. And this is the chief medicine that God supplies for the souls of men. It is considering Jesus and pondering him. He urges us to consider him as the apostle first, the one who is sent by God, the one who is given a mission by the Father, and then as the high priest, the one who represents us before God. So these two offices, which in a sense fulfill all that Jesus was, he is the apostle, the one who represents God to us. He is the high priest, the one who represents us before God. And in his fullness in this, he is everything that the believer needs. And we are to ponder this. Now that supremely is the great value, I would suggest to you, of studying a book like this. And it is that I would be ready to guarantee you, my Christian brothers and sisters, it is that above all other things that 99% of us in this hall this evening supremely need. We need to ponder, to consider the Lord Jesus. We need to dig into Holy Scripture. We need to ask God to open the eyes of our understanding. We need to wait upon him in his words so that we may consider him. The one who has come with this mission from God, who is the apostle of God. The one who has been the high priest offered up in our place and all that that involves and means. And the apostle gathers this together. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews gathers it together. In this one word, faithfulness, he was faithful to him who appointed him. And as we ponder the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who was always conscious of the Father sending him of this mission and ask what is this mission that he was sent to range through John's gospel, for example, where that phrase, him that sent me, is almost another name for God on the lips of Jesus. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The words that I speak are not my words, but the words of him that sent me. And he is constantly speaking of this he is conscious of an apostleship you see and apostello as you know is the word for being sent the apostles are those who are sent but the only reason that there are apostles in the new testament is that christ came to be the apostle and we are to consider him in this office as the one who was sent by the Father. Now that's what chapter 2 is really telling us, you see. It is telling us how Jesus came as the apostle from God 
to wear our nature, to enter into our humanity, to become our brother, to live a life of perfect obedience, to speak as men never spake before. It is this apostleship of Jesus that we are to consider and to ponder the mysteries of his priestly work as our Savior, both of which he fulfilled with perfect faithfulness. Now, our problem, as I say so often, is that our concentration is upon our own faithlessness and our own failure and our own weaknesses rather than upon him and his faithfulness. And there is a robust objectivity about this command that the apostle gives to us. Holy brethren who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. John Newton, whose letters I have sometimes commended to you, which are available in a paperback reprint, once wrote this to someone who had written to him, a lady who was in great need both of body and mind and soul. He says, ponder the glories of a crucified, risen, and reigning Redeemer, Madam, and they will be more to your soul, body, and mind than any apothecary's potion. Ponder the glories of a crucified, risen, and reigning Redeemer. Isn't it one of the problems that in all the Russian business of the world that we live in, one of our problems is that we do not get time to ponder the glories of a crucified, risen, and reigning Redeemer. Now Christ in his apostleship and priesthood has been faithful says the writer of the epistle in verse 2, to him who appointed him. And he has been faithful in a particular setting. Do you notice that Christ's faithfulness is associated with the household of God, that is, with God's people. And here is where Moses comes into the picture. He was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. Yet Jesus has been counted worthy of as much more glory than Moses as the builder of a house has more honor than the house. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and pride in our hope. Christ's faithfulness, therefore, as apostle and high priest is associated with the household of God, with God's people. And I say that's where Moses comes into the picture because he is accounted in Numbers chapter 12 verse 7 as faithful by God, as a servant within God's house. 
Now God's household is of course God's people. The apostle tells us in verse 6, you are, we are his house or his household. And it is the great biblical picture of the church as God's house, God's household. He builds us up as a dwelling place for God in the spirit. And there is a great biblical preoccupation that goes right through from Exodus, right through to the book of Revelation indeed, of God's preoccupation of calling out for himself a people, of creating and building a house. And he is redeeming a people for this purpose. You know, sometimes when we see Jesus' words, I will build my church, we think of this in terms of the New Testament. But beloved, the eternal Christ was building his church from the very beginning of the revelation we have in Scripture. The eternal Christ was building his church when God began to seek out a people. And in the book of Exodus, he tells us why it is that he is redeeming a people. I have redeemed them, he says, in order that I might dwell amongst them. He redeems in order to inhabit. And what God is about all through scripture, and that's what gives cohesion to it. He is calling out a people. He is building a dwelling place for himself. And the appearance of the tabernacle and the temple are an expression of this, you see. But then you come into the New Testament. And you ask, as we have often found ourselves asking and studying the epistle to the Ephesians, where is the temple of God now? Where is God's temple now? And the answer is, you are the temple of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God, right the whole way through biblical history, has been building a house for himself. Now Moses is one who has been faithful in this house as God is seeking out a people. And it's a very important thing for us to grasp this, that men like Abraham and Moses and all these great figures of the past are members of the same church that we are members of. They are members of the same household of God of which we are members. And it is the same God and the same Christ who has been building his church. Well, now here is the revelation of it. Moses, he says, was worthy of honor. But Jesus of much more glory, just as the builder of the house was more honor than the house. So do you see this picture? The eternal Christ. At work, building his church. Now, Moses was faithful to God, and he is a great pattern of faithfulness. But in all his greatness, Moses was a member of that house, that household of faith. He was a servant in it. He was part of it. That's what the apostle is saying. Whereas Christ is the builder of it. Whereas Moses was a servant in it, Christ is the Son and the Lord over the house. Christ was faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and pride in our hope. 
Now what he is saying here, you see, is this, that Christ and Christ alone is to be exalted, therefore, in the household of God. And that's an emphasis that we greatly need. And these Hebrew Christians obviously needed this emphasis. The emphasis that there is only one to whom supreme honor and glory belongs in the church of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an honor that is due to God's servants, not an honor that we are to seek, and I mean by God's servants, all of us are God's servants, do you notice how the Apostle Paul tells us that honor has to be regarded in the church of God? We are to outdo one another. Now, how are we to outdo one another in Romans chapter 12 with regard to honor? We are to outdo one another in showing it, not in seeking it. In preferring one another, is the RSV translation, I think. In honor preferring one another or outdoing one another. In showing honor. But we are to have one jealousy. And that is a jealousy that Jesus is the one who is supremely to be exalted and honored in his house. This is what he is building it for. Now Moses was faithful as a servant to testify to the gospel. Do you notice in verse 6, in verse 5 rather, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now that was Moses' faithfulness, you see. And the apostle is putting Moses in his proper place, this great figure whom these Hebrew Christians would have admired and regarded with such a sense of awe and wonder. But he says Moses was actually faithful supremely in this, in testifying to the things that were to be spoken later. Concerning whom? Well, of course, concerning Jesus. Do you see this absolute unity of the two testaments, the two covenants that God has written into the scripture? There is an absolute oneness. Moses spoke, says Jesus, concerning me. Moses spoke concerning me. That's the testimony that he was faithful in. And Moses' faithfulness was not as the Lord over the house or the builder of it. He was the one whose faithfulness consisted in that he consistently pointed away to me. And so on the Emmaus road, Jesus begins with these two men he meets. And beginning from Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's why the Old Testament is of such enormous importance to us. Now, you notice that in chapter 6, the apostle says Christ was faithful over, in verse 6 rather, Christ was faithful over God's house as a son 
And we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and pride in our hope. We are his dwelling. He is engaged in building us as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But these verses that follow now lead us in to the second area where we are to consider, and that is to consider our own hearts. And from verse 6, the apostle begins to instruct his readers in the sorry history of Israel under Moses, which provides a solemn warning to those who are members of the Christian communion of the great and evil consequences of what he calls an evil heart of unbelief, of hardening your hearts as they did. Now the quotation that you get in verse 7 uh, comes from Psalm 95 and the way that he leads into this is of great importance I think uh, what he is saying do you notice in verse 7 as he is about to quote Psalm 95 and what those of you who come from the Anglican communion will recognize as the Venite uh, he begins the verse therefore as the Holy Spirit says and he is now about to enter this warning today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Now, he goes on in verse 12, take care, brethren lest there be in any of you such an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, first of all, in order to urge and encourage them on in faithfulness, he turns them to the faithfulness of Christ. And that's the supreme thing that their whole vision is to be filled with. But having directed them there, you see this balance of Holy Scripture. The real security of the child of God lies in the faithfulness of Jesus. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints rests not on my ability to persevere to the end, but on God's promise to persevere with me. So the perseverance of the saints is really God's perseverance with me. And that's where my security is, that nothing shall separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ because he perseveres. Those whom he justifies, he goes on ultimately to glorify. Now that's the security of the believer. But the security of the believer in Christ in no sense lessens his responsibility to Christ. And that's what he is now going to emphasize. And it is possible, of course, to take the most glorious doctrines of Scripture 
And so to disregard them, because that is not a proper regarding of this doctrine, so to disregard them or distort them, that you are turning a heart of unbelief towards them. Now you see the evidence of true grace at work in a man's life is that he will endure to the end. That's the evidence of true grace. Not because of anything in himself, but because God has covenanted concerning our salvation. And he will persevere with us to the end. But the man who gives evidence of turning the kind of heart that is described here to such a God, to such an apostle and high priest of our confession, is giving evidence that he is an unbeliever rather than a believer. And you notice how he describes this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, he is turning now, you see, to scripture. He is turning from pointing them to the supreme glories of the Lord Jesus Christ to taking up the scripture and examples from scripture. And he is now applying that to them. But what I want you to notice is the way in which he does this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now that's a very significant thing because you see, this scripture quotation is introduced in such a way that we are obviously led to see that for the apostle. The message of Scripture is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And it speaks to us of the original inspiration of Scripture by God. What the Holy Spirit says is what Scripture says. And what Scripture says is what the Holy Spirit says. So when he takes the Scripture and applies that to the need of this people tempted to be discouraged and to fall away, he says, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. But of course there is another truth that is hidden here too, and that is not only the original inspiration of Holy Scripture, but the contemporary relevance of it. It's not merely something that was said or done in the past and genuine and true, but something which has a contemporary relevance and application to their lives at this particular juncture. As the Holy Spirit says, and here is now what the Holy Spirit is saying to you, he says. And he gives us this quotation from Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 is really referring back to that little bit of history in Exodus chapter 17, where the people of Israel are at Rephidim. And you will notice what it is that uh, happened there when the people found there was no water to drink. And they found fault with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. 
And Moses said to them, Why do you find fault with me? Why do you put the Lord to the proof? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured. And their murmuring against Moses brought Moses to call that place by two names, Meribah, which was embitterment, and Massah, which was testing. What they did not realize was that this was a place of testing, you see, that God was bringing them to. God had brought them to this place of testing, this Rephidim. And in their history, it was designed by God to be a place of blessing, where they would reach new depths in trusting him. And he withdrew the water in order to test the people and bring them to a new depth of trust and confidence in him. But you see, what happened, in fact, was that they began to murmur and to provoke God by an evil heart of unbelief. Now, it's very clear that his warning is against precisely that kind of thing arising in these Hebrew Christians to whom he is writing. A spirit that is like Meribah of embitterment. A spirit of murmuring. Now what was wrong in Israel, of course, was that they had ceased to trust God in his absolute faithfulness. They had taken their eyes away from God and they were looking at the desert barrenness round about them. And they began to murmur against the Lord, you see, in the midst of this testing. Now these Hebrew Christians were in the midst of testing. They were going through the mill spiritually. And the writer of this epistle says to them, Take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now beloved, there is this great tendency, there is this great danger, and it needs to be something that we are warned about. We need to be warned about it. The danger of a spirit of murmuring. Do you know what this is like? Let me, as we draw to a conclusion this evening, uh, try to bring this home to you because this spirit of murmuring can arise amongst a people in our own hearts in the quietest kind of way, a kind of murmuring against God, a spirit of criticism that begins to arise, a spirit that is negative. Do you know this kind of thing? That is always beginning to see negative things about people. A spirit that is always conscious of the negative things in our daily life. And it begins to act rather like the kind of rasping grinding that takes place in some machinery when it's out of sorts. And this murmuring, murmuring against God, and it comes out in murmuring against God's people, a spirit of discontentment. It's the most sinister thing because it was what began that evil heart of unbelief amongst the people of Israel. They began to grumble and murmur and complain. You know, I think it is a much more serious sign than we imagine when you get that spirit arising in your own heart and the apostle says, take heed about it. Take the warning." 
when you get the spirit arising in your spirit because it's the first sign of a hardened heart that is gradually going to become calloused against God. And there is nothing more frightening, I tell you from experience of people I have seen in this very condition, there is nothing more frightening than seeing people whose hearts have begun to grow hard. And I think the warning becomes even more solemn when he says, Take heed, brethren. Now some of these warnings in the epistle to the Hebrews seem extraordinary warnings, but let us Take the warning because God is speaking it by the Holy Spirit here. He says, take heed lest your heart becomes like this. Look at Israel and then pray that God may deliver you from that kind of hard heart because it sent them spiritually up the creek and it will send you the same place. When I was a boy, we used to go down to Galloway for all our holidays from which my family originate. And one of the things I always remember in Wigtonshire were the Irish potato gatherers who used to come over at the potato harvest time. And uh, they came in great companies and great monstrous men. And as a small boy, I used to go down to the end of the road out at Kildrochet and watch them sitting on the dike and they had a game they played with us an extraordinary game you know they were men with hands I've never seen hands so big and uh, they used to be able they had in the corner of their jackets pins you know and they used to give us boys these pins and we had this great game of sticking the pins into their hands and they would just sit there, you know, laughing. Because with all the intense hard work they'd been doing, their hands were covered with calluses. They couldn't feel a thing. Now, beloved, it is this insensitivity. It is possible to get calluses on your soul. Because you have been turning a hard heart to God when he has brought you into a place of testing, when he has brought you his word, when he has lavished his goodness upon you. Forty years in the wilderness, he says, I proved myself to them, and yet they turned an evil heart of unbelief. Whenever I withdrew anything from them so that I would test their faithfulness and devotion, then he said they began to murmur against me. And that can happen so easily. So, he says, consider one another. Look out for this in one another. Do you notice that? My dear friends, I think that with all the care that I long that we may have for one another, the kind of care that really will enter into each other's physical situation and our problems and needs in all different kinds, and I think in a true family of God we ought to be really exercised about that, But I want to say to you, the deepest kind of care that we should exercise for one another is this kind of care. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Am I really exercised about that? Is that the kind of care that we are exercising for one another? 
You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.